play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Sam Beam of Iron and Wine. This is my favorite song off of Iron and Wine and Calexico's album, Years to Burn. And if all this sounds familiar, it's because this episode originally aired in September 2019. But I'm on vacation, so I'm playing it again. The reason I chose this episode is because it is peak tomato season. And Sam Bean's last meal is a stack of tomato sandwiches. One of the simplest, but most ridiculously delicious foods I have ever eaten. But the only acceptable time to eat a tomato sandwich is in the summer, when the tomatoes are perfectly ripe and you can get them at the farmer's market or even better, in your own garden. I had never had a tomato sandwich before I met Sam and I have been obsessed with them ever since. I wait all year for tomato season so I can make as many tomato sandwiches as possible in the two weeks my garden produces them. And I know a lot of you are obsessed as well because you tag me in your tomato sandwich photos on Instagram, which I love. But I am going crazy over here because I haven't had a single tomato sandwich this season. My garden tomatoes are still green and hard and I am very stubborn and I refuse to buy any because I want my first taste of the season to be for my own garden. Anyway, we're going to welcome a few special guests to the show to talk about the very specific North Carolina way of eating a tomato sandwich, and we're going to get into the history of boiled peanuts. Oh, and at one point, you're going to hear me talking to a mysterious unnamed male voice. That is the voice of my former producer, Aaron Mason. Hi, Aaron. All that coming up, but first, my conversation with Sam Beam of Iron & Wine. A lot of famous artists, whether they're musicians or actors, had a fairly similar rags-to-riches start to their career. They were struggling artists for years. They lived in cramped apartments with too many roommates. They played to empty clubs. They worked as bartenders and babysitters to pay the rent until they finally got their big break. But Sam's story is completely opposite of that. I know. It was kind of embarrassingly easy. Um, I hate to repeat it because it's just embarrassing when I talk to my friends who work so hard. Um, but uh, I'll tell you anyway. Okay. I'm here to embarrass <laughs> uh, yeah, you. I would... <laughs> okay, it's easy to do sometimes. <laughs> Sam was a professor of film and cinematography at the University of Miami. Yeah, I was teaching, but I also, I always liked music. I mean, I had gone to art school and then ended up doing film work and was, you know, just one of those creative types who likes to dabble in lots of things, has a hard time focusing on one. Um, and music was one that I was doing in my spare time. I didn't really slug through playing shows a lot, but I was working on songs a lot. I was just working on the craft of writing rather than performing. But um, a friend of mine, uh, Ben Bridwell, who has a band called Band of Horses, um, we grew up together in Columbia, South Carolina, and we had you know, bonded on music over the years. We were keeping in touch and sending each other things that we were working on. And he was living in Seattle at the time and had a band called Carissa's Weird, 
and they were talking to Sub Pop about putting their record out, and he just put my stuff in their ear. He said, Lear, you should check out my friend's music, and they called me. I was a fan of Sub Pop Records. I mean, obviously, I was Nirvana, Death, and Red Red Meat, and all these all these great records. And so I was, yeah, I was shocked. I mean, are you sure you're, you have the right number? I mean, just given what the music I was making, it didn't really resonate in my mind as what Sub Pop would be interested in, but I was definitely, definitely flattered by the call. He wasn't even trying to be a professional musician. He was just trying to make music because he loved it. And then, oh, you know, he just gets a call one day from Sub Pop, which is the label that first signed Nirvana and Soundgarden and later signed bands like The Postal Service, The Shins, Sleater Kinney, Flight of the Concords, and past your last meal guests, Taco Cat. So two months after Sam signs with Sub Pop, they just send him out on tour. He just got cracking. It was, it was interesting. Just one of those moments where your life takes a turn or gives you an opportunity that you had never expected. And if you're willing to jump in, it might might take you down the rabbit hole. And here I am, still in the rabbit hole. I read an article in, from 2005 where you said that you're not a performer, that you always prefer to be behind the scenes, you know, with film being behind the camera. Uh, Fifteen yeah. years after you got your start, do you feel more comfortable performing? Do you enjoy it? I do, yeah. <laughs> I actually really do. Um, it was something I had to do in front of a lot of people for a long time and make mistakes. I think I just liked perfecting things. You know, I'm a person, an artist who likes to do lots of versions of a thing, you know, just develop a thing until you feel like, like it's ready to present rather than, um, you know, just let it all hang out and warts and all. I was always really self-conscious. Um, honestly, performing in front of people and, and messing up in front of people for for so long was really healthy for me. It made me able to embrace improvisation and um, and just sort of exposing yourself in a way that I think is healthy. Your music is so chill, so I was kind of delighted to read that you used to be a metalhead when you were young. Yeah. <laughs> As was I. I was a Pantera shirt-wearing chain wallet kind of gal oh, in high school. They were great, yeah. I mean, I, I liked, I think... I mean, I was always kind of a musical omnivore. I just liked all kinds of music. Um, but I think, yeah, that was one that people were surprised that I was way into pretty heavy music. <laughs> I mean, it's like assuming that a, a chef in an Italian restaurant only eats Italian food or something. No, it's true. It's but, like uh, you're not multidimensional. You are just this yeah, one thing. Yeah. Yes. You are a man with a beard, and that is all. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Sam has five children, ranging from 9 to 21 years old. And when he's home, he loves to cook. So how do you accommodate do. all of their tastes and palates? What are some dishes that uh, you can make for everybody? Uh, well, pizza is pretty popular. <laughs> yeah, they're all really different. That's always been a challenge, to be honest. I kind of just make things that I know that they like and then cook for uh, myself as well. <laughs> Part of being in a big family, everybody likes different things. So are you the nice dad then that will make a bunch of different dishes for different people? I do. Luckily, they only like a couple of things. I don't have to, you know, it's one of five things. <laughs> but we also all bond on ice cream, so we can, we always have a communal ice cream. What are the five things that you rotate through? Uh, well, they love mac and cheese. They love spaghetti. They love pizza. They love chicken. They sound like true American children. Mac and cheese and pizza. <laughs> I, know, I know the normal, the normals. Vegetables are all still always a chore, but we try. Some get. Lost. 
What would your last meal be? Oh, right. Um, the reason that we're here. Um, <laughs> well, I am from the southeast, um, and one of the best parts about this time of the year in the summer, we're talking in the summer, is the heirloom tomatoes. And so tomato sandwiches are kind of like crack rock to me. I can't get enough in the summertime. Just the fresh summer tomatoes with like the cheapest white bread toasted and with some mayonnaise and lemon and a little spring onions or something. They're so good. It's incredible. Oh, man. I just um, got a little drooly. I know. It's incredible. You just can't, if you've had one, you know what I'm talking about. I would like a stack of those. <laughs> and then I would also like boiled peanuts, which are also a, a kind of regional thing, which I, I grew up uh, with boiled peanuts is kind of like a snack at like any like baseball game or any kind of like public function it was just kind of a normal thing i didn't realize until i got out and grew up and left that it was a really regional and unique and actually divisive <laughs> snack <laughs> there's a lot of people who really don't like boiled peanuts but i think they're incredible can you explain I'm to doing... us yankees what a boiled peanut is like what's the texture and the flavor as opposed to the um, kind of standard ones well, it's really soft. I mean, generally, you know, you eat them roasted with salt or something. But these, they, you take them green and you boil them so they're soft, but they're really rich and sort of nutty in flavor. Some people just can't get past the texture. You kind of boil them in a brine. And now it's kind of popular to do them like a Cajun, like a hot peanut, and they're so good. And you can kind of get them at any gas station. I mean, you know, take your life in your hands sometimes. <laughs> at the same time they're really they're i think they're great but you know it's just what i grew up with um and then to drink i would demand white burgundy the most delicious drink there is on the nectar of the gods <laughs> from the coat door so that's that's my last meal Wow. So what is white burgundy like? What is the profile and is there a certain brand that you like the best? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I can't afford the stuff that I like the best, but I've had it poured for me before. They're just so balanced between the acid and the and the oak. It's just, I don't know. I, it's one of those wines where I can sit and just smell it and just be just as happy. I don't have to actually drink mm. it. Just sit there and sniff on it all night. And it's it's such a pleasure. So you're the cool guy in the corner, just sniffing a a glass. (laughs) I don't know how cool I am, but I'm definitely happy. But it's uh, there's a reason it's so expensive. It's a reason it's the most popular grape in the world, and everyone wants to make it. But it's a unique thing. For his last meal, Sam Beam wants a stack of tomato sandwiches, boiled peanuts, and a French white burgundy. Sam lives in North Carolina where tomato sandwiches are a big part of the culinary culture. People have very strong opinions about what should be on one, what should not be on one, and there is only one acceptable brand of mayonnaise. We'll get to all of that after the break. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, 
or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Sam Beam wants a tomato sandwich for his last meal. Have you had an heirloom tomato white bread mayo sandwich this summer yet? Oh, man, yeah, I have one. Like, when I'm home, I live in North Carolina, so there's a bunch of them around. Um, yeah, I have them, like, several times a week. <laughs> I try to have so many that I get tired of them, so I'm ready to, for them to go away. It's important that the tomatoes are super ripe and preferably from somebody's garden. I'm not going to make a sandwich in December. You know, that's part of the fun of it is that it's so seasonal. And so you have, it's like, you know, peaches or something, plums, summer plums. They're only right one time a year. And so you have to wait. And that's what makes it wonderful. Now, I've watched people get a faraway look in their eye talking about the joys of a simple tomato sandwich during tomato season. But I had no idea that this was a thing in North Carolina. It's like a crawfish boil in Louisiana, or in and out in California, or David Hasselhoff in Germany. Are they still into him? Is this still happening? They still are, <laughs> they and still they love will him. always be. Nine. Why would I just say no to you in German? There's no reason to say no. I should have yes-anded you. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know more about the Southern Tomato Sandwich. So I called up Kathleen Purvis. She's a veteran food journalist in Charlotte, North Carolina. The tomato sandwich all over the South is sort of the perfection of simplicity. The first thing that people try to do and do it wrong is they try to add bacon to it. It's not a BLT. It's not a bacon and tomato sandwich. It is strictly a tomato sandwich. And that means that you wait until the tomatoes are really good, which is later in the summer when it's very hot, you're suddenly flooded by tomatoes. And heirloom tomatoes all around here are a big deal. The second factor in that is the bread. For it to be a true tomato sandwich, it has to be white bread. And I know some people turn their nose up at it. Well, do you mean sourdough? Do you mean, you know, home-baked bread? Sure, if you want to get fancy. But honestly, most people get really into what they call bunny bread from the Morita Company. It is basically just your straight-on white bread. It's Wonder Bread. You know, that kind of pillowy, soft is what you want. You want the tomato juices to soak into the bread because it gives it kind of that gushiness factor. And then the third thing that's the most important thing is the mayonnaise. Yes, it has to be mayonnaise and just mayonnaise. You know, don't get fancy. Don't be adding anything else. And the mayonnaise, of course, in the South, the classic one that people will go to their graves fighting over is Duke's mayonnaise, which was invented in South Carolina by a woman named Eugenia Duke. It is still made um, and very, very popular in the South. And the trick with Duke's mayonnaise versus like Hellman's is that Duke's mayonnaise has no sugar in it. So it's a little bit more um, 
piquant, I think would be the right word. It's got a little bit of a tang to it. And of course, it's very creamy. And so the, the juices from the tomato mix with the creaminess of the mayonnaise mix with the, the pillowiness of soft white bread. A good tomato sandwich, the juices need to roll down your arm to your elbow, and you probably should eat it standing over the sink. It's the kind of thing you would do if you've been working out in your garden all day. You're hot, you're tired, you just want to really appreciate your tomatoes. You make yourself a nice tomato sandwich, no bacon, no lettuce, and you stand over the sink and eat it. And that's like the epitome of a southern summer evening. What about salt? Yes, absolutely. I'm always in favor of salt because salt will bring out the juices and the tomato. I put pepper on mine. I mean, salt and ground pepper never hurt a thing. This summer was the first time that I ever had a tomato sandwich. I didn't like tomatoes for most of my life, and I started liking them maybe like 10 years ago. And so it's kind of been like a slow crawl to want to just eat a big slab of tomato. But it was Uh after I interviewed Sam and hearing him talk about it, I was like, I got to try this because I do grow heirloom tomatoes. And I had these huge orange heirlooms that took up the size of my palm and I mean, they're so big that I made a salad with one of them and four people couldn't finish it. I mean, they're huge. (laughs) So I got, um, I think, potato bread, and then I had the mayonnaise and the salt, and I was not prepared for how good it was. I just thought, it'll be fine. There you go. I made one, and then I immediately made another one, and then I made another one, and I was eating open face, so it was easier to kind of hork them down, but I ate three in a row the first time. And then I've been eating them ever since. They're so good. It's so perfect because it's so simple. If you try and fancy it up, it's not going to be right. It's an absolute celebration of summer. About how many tomato sandwiches do you think you had this summer? Uh, probably 25. That's Vivian Howard, North Carolina chef, restaurateur, cookbook author, and former host of the PBS show, A Chef's Life. That's a good number. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I one summer when when we first discovered Cherokee purples, I ate so many tomato sandwiches that I broke out in a rash around my mouth, I guess from the acid of the tomatoes. Kathleen Purvis once wrote an article about a woman who had a tomato sandwich party, which apparently is something that you do in North Carolina. And some of her guests were not local. They had moved to North Carolina semi-recently. So they demanded lettuce. They wanted bacon on their sandwich. And the Charlotte Observer readers were incensed. They were so angry. This article garnered more comments, mostly angry comments, than any piece Kathleen had written in her decades-long career. People can get very defensive about how their family made something. If you're arguing with them, well, you're really arguing with their grandmother, and how dare you do that? So... (laughs) So all of these people attacked her. And the thing was, is she was in very bad health and she knew she wasn't going to live to the following year. I went to do a follow up on it and the woman had had died. And for her wake, I believe her family did a whole tomato sandwich thing because she loved them so much. Why were they mad at her? It sounds like it was her guests who were the problem. Food arguments strike at the real base of who we are. It's the same thing we see with barbecue, same thing we see with pimento cheese. People will really get emotionally wrapped up in their food choices. Hearing this, I was shocked to read that Vivian put a tomato sandwich on the menu at her restaurant, Chef and the Farmer. A tomato sandwich that strayed from the classic white bread and Duke's mayo formula. You make another version of the tomato sandwich with the Cherokee purple tomatoes on onion bread with smoked corn aioli. So this is, you know, getting a little bit fancy, but I've only read good things 
People have good things to say about this. So is it possible sometimes to sneak a chefy version through? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's kind of what we're charged with as chefs who cook the food of our childhood. I certainly couldn't go to the store and buy Wonder Bread. If I had to choose between um, only having that sandwich with the smoked corn mayonnaise or a regular tomato sandwich for the rest of my life, I would still choose the regular tomato sandwich. But I am quite proud of what I did with the one at Chef and the Farmer. Have you had another version in a restaurant that you liked? No. <laughs> <laughs> The reason that you've probably read about my gussied up tomato sandwich is because it's a rare thing to do um, in a restaurant setting. It's interesting to me that it's such a Southern thing because it's not like you can't get these ingredients all over the country and people grow tomatoes all over the country, too. You know, I honestly, after I've been writing about Southern food in North Carolina for, you know, Lordy, 30 years. And one of the things I noticed is that I don't think People don't do it in other places. They just don't celebrate it to the degree that we do. You know, people in the South didn't have a whole lot. Most of us are from pretty rural backgrounds. Our parents and our grandparents certainly were poor, even if we aren't. And so we tended to really celebrate and hang on to the things that were special to us. You look at something like pimento cheese or a tomato sandwich. These are very, very basic things. But they're so much a part of our identity of who we are that even though they might be made somewhere else, nobody defends them quite like we do. (laughs) I want to move on because I know that you know all about Southern food. One of the other things that Sam wants for his last meal are boiled peanuts. So I want to ask you about that. Oh, Lordy, he's a man after my own heart. I love boiled peanuts. I was raised on boiled peanuts. I read a bunch of articles about the history of boiled peanuts, and as it turns out, none of the stories I read are true. Not even close to the truth. As often happens, white folks are given credit for an African-American invention, which is the case here, but the story goes even deeper than that. When we come back, culinary historian Robert Moss sets the record straight. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Sam Beam wants boiled peanuts as a part of his last meal. And as I started doing research and reading articles about the history of this very Southern snack, I kept reading the same story over and over again. That boiled peanuts were eaten by Civil War soldiers out of desperation. That it was a cheap, protein-rich food that filled them up. These articles said that white Southerners invented the boiled peanut out of necessity in the early 1860s. But South Carolina culinary historian and food writer Robert Moss set the record straight in a super informative piece he wrote for Serious Eats. Yeah, well, first we'll start with the what's not the history, because if you Google it, you'll probably find some variation of a story that, that the boiled peanuts got started during the Civil War. Confederate troops 
had their supplies cut off and they were so desperate they took to boiling peanuts, which up till then no one had eaten. You know, there was just a animal food or something, and they discovered they loved them, and thus the, bo the boiled peanut was born, which couldn't really be any further from the truth. That's not at all uh, how people in the South started eating boiled peanuts. Uh, in fact, boiled peanuts were around long, long before the, the Civil War. And it's actually sort of a curious history because the peanut itself is South American in origin. So it was found by Portuguese colonists when they were uh, in Brazil. And then the Portuguese ended up taking the peanut to Africa, and the African groundnut was already a staple in the African diet. And they adopted the peanut and started growing it along, alongside it as sort of an alternate crop. And so peanut became really a staple of the, the diet in a lot of West African cultures. And then the peanut ended up being brought to North America via the slave trade or colonial America, particularly in the, the Carolina colony. Um, a lot of the slave Africans there would grow peanuts in their garden patches. So it was very much a you know, part of, the, of their food ways, and it was, it was something that was grown primarily for African families and then their descendants initially. It really wasn't until after the American Revolution that white Southerners sort of discovered the peanut and started uh, cooking it as well. Boiled peanuts were not a food of desperation for Civil War soldiers. They actually already loved boiled peanuts, and they couldn't get any during wartime. That story is even told in a wartime song called Goober Peas. Which is a, sort of a, one of these classic Civil War ditties, I guess you would call it. And it's all about soldiers who are reminiscing for home and missing eating peanuts. It, it, it's exactly the opposite. They, they don't have peanuts when they're in camp uh, out in the field. Goober Peas was a common nickname for peanuts back in the day. And it actually comes from an Angolan word, N-G-U-B-A, guba. It's an Angolan word for, for peanut. And so that was sort of went from guba to goober. I guess even today, it's, it's long been a, a nickname for peanut. It makes sense that they call it a pea because a peanut is not a nut. It's actually a legume, which is a very fun word to say. Uh, the peanut is a cousin to peas and beans. And boiled peanuts are made from fresh green peanuts that are harvested this time of the year. Definitely very much a seasonal thing. Peanut harvest is usually somewhere between uh, August and October, only lasts a couple of weeks. And those are truly green peanuts. Those are peanuts that have just been dug out of the ground uh, and, and they're raw. They have a lot of moisture in them, so they don't last very long. So um, you, they only last a couple of weeks, even refrigerated. So you can buy raw peanuts and boil them any time of the year. But the green peanuts, which make the best ones, are really only available for a couple of weeks in the uh, late summer and early fall. The natural moisture in the green peanuts is why West Africans started to boil them. They were too moist to be roasted. If you haven't had one before, it's, it could be a bit of a, an acquired taste because it's going to be soft. Both the shell is soft when you peel it and then the pea in, inside, it's going to be a soft, salty kind of pea. It's not anything like uh, what you might expect if you're used to eating roasted peanuts. Let's check back in with Sam Beam. Like I mentioned earlier, Sam loves to cook. What do you like to listen it's to good. when you cook? Uh, you know, honestly, it's like a great time to listen to music. I've gotten to a point in my life where silence is a commodity, too. I think it's just a occupational hazard. <laughs> I'm not a very passive listener. It's kind of an active experience. It's hard because I like words, and it's hard to be concentrating on a task and also listen to the words, too. 
like the car has become a hard time to listen to music for some reason because I get distracted and that gets a little dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, washing dishes seems to be safe enough. You can only cause so much damage if you're not paying attention. And so usually it's instrumental music. I, I listen to a lot of jazz or you know modern classical music. And that was Sam Beam of Iron and Wine's Last Meal. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And it was an honor speaking with you. I'm a big fan. Likewise. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's been a treat. <laughs> you can pick up his new album, the latest collaboration with the band Calexico. It's called Calexico and Iron and Wine, Years to Burn. They are on tour right now all the way through February in the U.S. and in Europe and in Canada. Go to ironandwine.com tours. And that was Sam Beam from Iron and Wine's Last Meal. Kathleen Purvis. I think I'm already picking up all these people's accents. I'm delighted to find out that he's got such good taste. Very, very basic. Iron and Wine's latest EP came out in 2022. It's called Lori. Iron and Wine has released seven full-length albums and many more EPs and singles. Go check them out. Thanks to award-winning North Carolina food journalist and author Kathleen Purvis. Chef and cookbook author Vivian Howard. She has four restaurants in North Carolina and Robert Moss, Charleston, South Carolina-based food writer and author of five books on food history. There, we've officially covered all the Carolinas. Your Last Meal was created and hosted by me and is a product of Seattle's Cascade Public Media. The original episode was produced by Laura Scott and Aaron Mason. Special thanks to KUAF Public Radio in Fayetteville, Arkansas. They let me record the interview with Sam Beam in their studios. And if you haven't been to Fayetteville, Arkansas, it is such a cute little town with a great food scene. If you liked the episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It is a free and easy way to support the show. Follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell, and I have a newsletter, rachelbell.substack.com. That's where you can find out about giveaways, special events, and more. I'll be back in two weeks, very refreshed from vacation, with a brand spanking new episode. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. More often. It's important that the tomatoes are super ripe and preferably from somebody's garden. Do you say preferably? Is that not a word? I would say preferably. Oh, really? Yeah. Preferably. Preferably. Hmm. Is it a tomato tomato? Sandwich sandwich? I see what you did. (laughs) Preferably. Preferably. Yeah. They both sound right and wrong.